We've been on a journey of Jesus' last week here on earth as we look toward Easter uh, for the last few weeks and for the next few weeks. Um, it's been fun to look at and to celebrate and to like dive deeply into Jesus' experience as he spent his last seven days on earth before dying on a cross. But I don't want to start there. I want to start with the fact that this February, my family went to Disneyland. Some friends of ours, Sam and Cindy and Lydia Chow, and we went to Disneyland, and February is the best time to go if you go on a Tuesday and a Wednesday because it's like no one's there, all the things, all the tricks. And Disneyland, as you know, is the happiest place on earth. At least I'm convinced that day one, of, when I have, four kid, I have four kids, day one was the happiest place on earth. Day two was not the happiest place <laughs> on earth. Day two was like... I need to make an appointment with my therapist or go have confession with a priest. Like something out of day two begins to emit out of my soul that does not feel like happiness anymore. But um, the reason I share that is while we were there, I was able to take my oldest son, Caleb, uh, who's 10, on his first like adult roller coaster ride. It's called the Incredicoaster in California Adventure, and it has a loop, and it goes really fast. And I remember as we're waiting in line, like the anticipation and a little bit of nerves building in his mind and in his heart, trying to figure out scientifically, because he's scientific-minded, like how does the loop actually work and I not fall out of the roller coaster? And then I remember he felt pretty comfortable, and then we get on the ride, and he's 10, so he doesn't do this all the time anymore, but he like, quickly reaches over and grabs my hand, which like your mother and father heart just like loves and aches for that. Um, so we're on the coaster, and if you've ever been on it, you like board, and then you go around the corner, and then there's a countdown, and at the end of the countdown, you take off on the Incredicoaster. And this is the moment that I won't forget, is that once you take off, you begin to climb and ascend really quickly. And then there's that moment, the first one, where you like crest the first hill. And you begin to, to get right at the top, and then you free fall down. It's where you lose your stomach a bit, and your adrenaline starts to flow, and you don't know what's going to happen next. You see, we are at that point in the journey of Jesus' life, Jesus' last week, where we've like crested the top, and now we are on this like downhill, quickly descending roller coaster. Things are moving really fast, and we're nearing the lowest point of Mark's story. Jesus has already wrestled with the will of God and yielded to the Father. He's already turned himself, given his life over to the Sanhedrin, those that are seeking to persecute him. He's already been left and abandoned by his disciples. He's been taken to Pilate and condemned, even though Pilate knows he's innocent. But Pilate, Jesus is alone. And this, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And while we look toward Easter, and we should, let us not miss this moment, or better said maybe, let us not miss this movement of suffering that Jesus endures to accomplish the will of the Father. We so typically as Americans and Westerners want to look for like the high points in the story and shield our eyes from the low points in the story. But that's not really life. That's almost make-believe. But Christ enduring the suffering 
is actually the mechanism that one day will bring justice to the world. Think about that just for a second. Christ treated so unjustly will one day be the mechanism that brings justice to the world again. He will one day make all things right again. The suffering of this week in Jesus' life is actually about what brings the recreation or renewal of all things in heaven and earth. John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that picture of Jesus being the lamb, like one led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53 says, John is is writing about how this lamb of God will fulfill the prophecy to take away the sins of the world. But what's beautiful about the story of the scriptures, it's it's not just a week. So while we look at this week, we want to keep in picture the big picture, the big story. Because what's beautiful is is this reference of lamb who takes away the sin of the world doesn't just speak to the cross. It actually speaks to the end of the story as well. Revelation 21 refers to Jesus as the lamb. In context, the lamb of God and this lamb in Revelation 21 is not suffering any longer. but But returning to rule and to reign. Returning to make things right again. Returning to like overlap heaven and earth. That there be no separation anymore. Returning the world to the state of like the Garden of Eden as we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And so as we dive into today's text, we must remember the part of the story that we're in. But also keep in mind the like fullness of the story that we're living into as we follow Jesus, that this one day suffering lamb would make the world right again. The promise to even like David in the Old Testament that like your, your lineage, your heritage will rule and reign forever. These already fulfilled prophecies by Jesus and not yet fulfilled prophecies by Jesus. Who takes away the sin of the world, yes, but one day will also make all things right again. And that's the story that we're looking at as we jump in to this text. If you have a Bible and it's not open, open it to Mark 15. It's where we're spending most of our time today. Mark 15, verse 21 says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. This man, Simon, who is likely in town as a part of a pilgrimage um, to share in the Passover feast in Jerusalem, he's out with his boys, and they're heading into town from a field or their field. We're not quite sure, but you can imagine he's coming into town, and he sees a bunch of people lining the streets, and he fights to, like, get close and see what's going on. He's just curious at this point in the story. He's, like, trying to figure out why everyone's gathered and what's happening. And maybe he like fights to get to the front or maybe the guy, I was just thinking and considering it this week, um, the scriptures don't say this so it's not a big deal, but maybe he's like fighting to get to the front and the guy next to him gets in line for cutting so he like pushes him a little bit. But he ends up being seen by Roman soldiers. That's what we know. So he, he gets close enough and in enough that he ends up being seen by Roman soldiers. And this like 
overly curious dad stumbling into the situation and being called on a Roman soldier to carry a guy's cross is surely not what he expected to happen this day. It's likely that Simon doesn't know who Jesus is at this point, doesn't know what crime he's committed, doesn't know what's going on at all. It's very literally like a wrong place at the wrong time sort of thing. But it's important, just as we understand the story of God, as we understand the scriptures, that we see that Mark includes this detail very, for a very specific reason. In the ancient Near East, this is like for you graduate students or ex-graduate students or one day going to be graduate students. This is like a footnote in the research paper. In the ancient Near East, this is like um, Mark saying like, go ahead and check my work and make sure that my story lives up to itself. It is likely that when Mark writes these words, Simon may not be alive, but Alexander and Rufus surely are. And so Mark includes them in the story as a little mark of like, go and check and ask Simon and Rufus, or ask, sorry, Alexander and Rufus if this story is true. Go ahead and validate this story. Not just this detail, but this story. So Simon, this man from nowhere, has an encounter with Jesus, really briefly. This is the only time Simon's mentioned in the scriptures, and it's not a positive one. This is likely humiliating for him. He has to carry the patibulum, which is like the horizontal beam of the cross, because the vertical beam is already in the ground awaiting the arrival of three prisoners. But this is all we hear about him. It's his only mention, but notice just for a second, the contrast. Throughout the rest of Jesus' life and Jesus' teachings, Jesus is always the one who invites to carry our burdens. Jesus is the one who invites us to like place our weight or our yoke upon him. And at this moment in the story, Jesus cannot carry his own burden. Jesus can no longer, because he's been beat and scourged and whipped and lost blood, all these sorts of things, Jesus needs help, and Jesus receives help. And often I say, and someday I hope, my mic's getting really weird, sorry guys. Often I say, and someday I hope, when we get to teach about community and the vitality of community for followers of Jesus, it's important that we understand that like, there is no going at it alone in the kingdom of God. I so want you to like, settle that in your heart. You don't chase after Jesus. You don't follow Jesus. You don't apprentice after Jesus. You don't become a person of love by like, just going at it on your own. That's not how the kingdom works. Even Jesus has Simon of Cyrene for help him to, to help him to fulfill Jesus's mission. And maybe that's just like the simple word you need to hear today, that you don't have to go at it alone. You don't have to go at it alone. You don't have to live a life alone. You don't have to follow Jesus alone. And I know we as a community, River and Way, haven't launched house churches yet. That's really like the fundamental part of who we are, and we haven't even stepped into it. But just know that, like, yes, that's coming, but also just as I was considering, like, if you're together. But the journey continues on, and they take Jesus to Golgotha, or the place of the skull, and verse 23 reads, Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but Jesus did not take it. 
So wine mixed with myrrh at this time, as you would imagine, is like, it's like a little bit of a sedative to reduce the pain that Jesus has been enduring and will continue to endure as he suffocates. And Jesus doesn't take the sedative. And I want to, at least I think, I want to break the myth that like Jesus is this like overly macho person who refuses to take the sedative. I think there's a bit more to the story than that. I actually think Jesus here is keeping his word more and more so than he's keeping his like machismo. He's keeping his promise to his followers. Uh, one page to the left, Mark 14, verse 24 says, where at this point in the story, uh, Jesus and his disciples are sitting around a the table. They've broken bread together and they're sharing what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. Um, but they're having food and drink and they're like, they're sharing life together. And then Jesus says this in verse 24, this speaking of the wine is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So I think when Jesus is giving wine and myrrh and they put it in his mouth, Matthew actually says he tastes it and refuses to drink it. I don't think he's just being overly machismo. I think he's trying to say, no, my eyes are still towards the kingdom and the promises that I've made to those people who are following me. My eyes are not about my present current experience. That is real, and we don't want to diminish that reality, but the thing that's actually truer, the thing that is more real is the thing that is to come. So Jesus refused to drink the wine because he promised his followers that he would drink with he would not drink it again until he's with them in the kingdom of God. And then really subtly after that, Mark so easily slips in the line, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. They took Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin in the city of David, in a twisted sense of irony. The book of John declares that, that through Jesus, through the word, through logos, all things were made. And through a twisted sense of irony, Jesus goes to hang on a cross that he participated in creating. God in the flesh hung on a tree. And I wonder just a little bit when he created the tree if he knew that somewhere in that tree this moment in time would be baked into it as well. But one of the realities that we must capture today is the significance of this happening. Jesus, God in the flesh, placed upon a cross. And we'll get to that in just a little bit more time. I want to look at verse 26. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. In John's Gospel, the chief, priest, or chief priests resist this title that is given to Jesus. You see, the charge or the reason or the crime that is committed is hung upon the cross, always displayed, because the cross is a tool of torture and of death, but it is also a tool of social conformity, a mechanism to trigger fear into anyone who might think of resisting the momentum of Roman rule and empire. Or if you're a reader or a movie watcher, I guess, like us, my wife and I literally last night just finished reading again The Hunger Games. 
And so if you've read the book or watched those movies, uh, the capital seeks to maintain social conformity by putting on these games that everyone else in all the other districts might be scared into ensuring that they obey whatever the capital asks and commands. And if you've read those books or seen the movies, that is how we should also see the cross, a mechanism to control potential uprisings and ensure that everyone knows that any threat to Rome will eventually come to the cross. And the chief priest in John's gospel says, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews, and Pilate dismisses his request. And in some twisted sort of way, the first written proclamation comes into the world that Jesus is king. That Jesus is king. And, and this isn't a small moment in the story. Um, in I think it's Matthew's writing, maybe John's writing. Uh, it's written in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. It's almost like a global proclamation of Jesus' kingship. That whoever comes by will see these words written. That Jesus is king of the Jews. And the story goes on. Read with me in verse 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teacher of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Or in Matthew's account, Chapter 27, verse 43 says, they yelled, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants to. And these accusations from the crowd passing by and the chief priests always hit home for me in a really heavy way, and, and they should. These are heavy accusations. I think partially, partially it hits home for me because of the like righteous indignation that wells up inside of me, um, but I think it may irritate me even more because if I were Jesus, I think I would have done what they asked. I think if I were hanging on the cross and I was the Messiah power or to demonstrate who I really am or who God really is or who you really are, that I was the Messiah I would tell them the truth about heaven and earth and the reconciliation of all things and the truth about who God really is. But I think I would have got down even though I have no right to. The scriptures make really, really, really clear that the wages of sin and death and because we have chosen to participate in sin that we, like, we should suffer and die. That is the appropriate consequence for egregious or rebellion against God. But Jesus has not sinned. Jesus is innocent. And so when this mocking comes, when these calls come, when these commands to prove yourself, just think for a second, like, if someone in your life said prove yourself, our response, my response, most likely isn't going to start with humility. 
or receiving mockery. And sometimes we forget that the part of the beauty of this story is that Jesus, through whom all things were made, Jesus, God who has become flesh. Jesus, born of a virgin, is a refugee on run in Egypt. Jesus, who calmed the waters and the storms with the power of his words. Jesus, who called the dead to be raised. Jesus, who was abandoned by his friends at his most vulnerable moment and had blood pouring from his sweat glands. Jesus, who was beaten, mocked, turned away, and condemned, although everyone knew he was innocent. It was Jesus. It was him. It was the embodiment of God on earth who hangs on the cross, the creator of the world, the king of kings and lord of lords. It is not Barabbas as it ought to be, nor you as it ought to be, nor me as it ought to be. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. And it's one of the last acts of his life as he is being beckoned and mocked to come down. He willfully chooses to remain. Jesus hanging on the cross is not a passive act by him. It's a willful act by him. And as we begin to hit this like free fall of the roller coaster down, and to mark what appears to be the lowest point in the story. We must remember again, like we were talking about earlier, the full picture, the full story of what's going on here. Because right now, although it feels like Jesus is losing the battle at this point in the story, we must keep in mind a promise from the very beginning. Like Jesus not drinking the wine, we must look not just to the moment, but see the bigger picture of what's happening in the kingdom of God. In Genesis 3, this is the Lord God speaking to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. He's talking about the curse of the serpent and says that one day there will be enmity between the snake and an offspring. Verse 15, Genesis 3 verse 15 says, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This moment for Jesus on the cross is real and painful and true. Jesus is suffering. And Jesus is in the process of dying a slow, painful, agonizing death. But there is also something more true happening here in the story. At the same moment, the power of death and Hades are being overthrown. The penalty of sin, which we could not pay for ourselves, Jesus is paying himself. God in the flesh killed upon a cross. Jesus, through the inadvertent nature of the kingdom of God, is becoming king of the world by dying on a cross. Jesus is becoming king of the world, king of the cosmos, king of kings by dying on a cross. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is reclaiming his sovereign rule over humanity, creation, and the cosmos. And this appears to be the way of the kingdom, the way of power in Jesus' economy. And we often talk about here at River and Way, we often talk about following the way of Jesus. And we spent, if you were here for the first nine months um, of River and Way's life, we spent our first nine months looking at the words and teachings of Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount, dreaming and looking and studying of what it means for the kingdom of God to be breaking in on earth as it is in heaven. But this, too, is the kingdom of God breaking in on earth. This is Jesus' coronation ceremony. 
Think Elsa's coronation ceremony in Frozen. And unlike Elsa, Jesus doesn't like lose his powers. But he willfully restrains to say yes to remaining on the cross. In this church, this is the way of Jesus we must follow too. Not just in life, but in death. And two weeks from now, the victory of resurrection. N.T. Wright in his book, How God Became King, says, As in the book of Revelation, the victory and sovereignty belong to the slaughtered lamb. And the slaughtering was not simply a one-time unhappy moment that can now be replaced by the Lamb's followers taking up arms to bring his kingdom by the methods of Herod and Pilate. What N.T. Wright is saying is that the way of the slaughtered lamb is not just something we look about or read about when it comes to crucifixion, but this is, this is the participation of life and following the way of Jesus. That we don't begin to inherit or receive the grace of Jesus accomplished by the work on the cross and then take up arms in the same way Herod and Pilate would. But if anything, we take up pain and suffering and death, the slaughtering way of the lamb, like Jesus did. Or said another way, right in the same book, says martyrdom of one sort or another, suffering of one sort or another is what kingdom bringers must expect. This is the way of Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 24 through 26 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. When we look at how Romans used crucifixion, that word cross is not a like throwaway word for like it might be kind of tough. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life to me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So follow his life. Yes, absolutely but also follow him in death. Yes, absolutely. We follow him in self-sacrificial love. We follow him into pain and suffering, not choosing to pursue those things, but enduring those things with our eyes fixed on the kingdom that comes. Because of that, we can endure the hurt and the mess and the conflict and the pain we experience in this life because we know that Christ, that God uses all things for the good of those who love him. And we don't just throw pithy Bible verses at it, but like we endure with steadfastness because we are being transformed and made into the image of Christ. Not just in life, but in pain and suffering and death as well. N.T.'s writes words were some form of martyrdom some form of martyrdom. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This story that we live into, this micro story of the last week of Jesus' life, in this macro story that we live into with our whole lives, this story is about the power of God. 
the reign and rule of his kingdom, that even when it is perceived like it is losing, even when it seems like Jesus has lost, even when it seems like God's not at work anymore in your life, even when it seems to be quiet or not present or you haven't felt or sensed or heard God in some time, even then the power of God is still at work renewing and recreating all things. And this story of power is about how God is taking the workload in this story specifically with Jesus. He's taking the workload upon himself to redeem and renew all things that have been broken by rebellion against him. And that is our invitation. Because at the cross, we get to receive grace because Jesus died in our place. So, but that grace does not fluctuate with how we feel about God or the circumstances of our day. Like That grace is like the cement solid rock foundation on which we stand. It does not ebb and flow with how I feel about God. It is secure and finished and done. And because of that, we have an invitation then to participate in making the world right again. To participate in living our lives in submission to the king of the Jews, the king on the cross. The Romans could have never known by making him a crown like what sort of coronation was actually taking place. Galatians 2.20, and we'll end here, says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Today, we again receive the grace and mercy of Jesus. It was put on full display through Jesus being crucified. And this is not, like I said, some like loose gravel grace. This is like hard rock cement type of grace. And then we don't leave it in this cognitive understanding belief category that like we only do things with our brain, but this translates into the story that we participate in as we live here and now in the city of Bakersfield. Because if we really believe this to be true, if we really believe Jesus suffered and died, if we really believe Jesus rose from the dead, this is not something that like kind of affects our life. This is a completely different story that we live into with all that we are. Being formed and reformed. And to be honest with you, this is no easy call. It's no easy invitation. But this invitation will allow you to become like on the deepest level who you've really always wanted to be. Or maybe said differently, this will allow you to become who God created you to be. This is the work of the cross. God slowly putting all things back together again. Slowly putting you back together again. Slowly building trust even between you and him again. Slowly turning your heart outward toward others again. Slowly but surely advancing his kingdom on earth and in your own heart too. But a story is only worth believing if we say yes to participating and living into the story. If we embody the story, if we become a part of the story, if we take up our inheritance of the story. And this story, or at least according to Paul, is the story of God's power. God's power to heal the world and God's power through the cross to heal each of us.
for your care for each of us that like you saw the full kingdom picture and you chose to live well in like your portion of the story, faithfulness to the Father. And so even as we just like reflect on your crucifixion, as we reflect on your life and your death and your resurrection, may you stir up affection in our heart again. So often, like Christian jum has become the things that we believe rather than the things that we feel. And, and I just don't think those things fight against one another. I think they fight together for the kingdom, for the spirit to break in and through our hearts and lives. So even now, God, would you stir our affections for you, our love for you, our care for you. The thing you've always desired is relationship with your people, not like stale things, but relationship with your people. And so, Jesus, we come to worship you now, to receive what you have done are doing and what you are going to do. We trust you and we worship you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?